I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I have this dualism in the book. I say some people are diminishers and some people are illuminators. And diminishers aren't curious about people and they stereotype and they label. And one of the things that diminisher will do is called stacking. And that's if I know one thing about you, you supported Donald Trump. Then I proceed under the assumption that I know 8 million things about you. And that, that's stacking. And illuminators, on the other hand, make you feel lit up and, and warm. They're pure, persistently curious about you. They want to know your backstory. And they make you feel great because they, they really warmly pay attention to the stories you tell about yourself. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks. And as you'll hear in our conversation, he calls himself a grower. He's grown as a person, he says, over his 60-something years, in part through the books he's written exploring how people see themselves and see others. His most recent book tells how the people he's met, many of them very different from himself, have given him insights into, as the book's title puts it, how to know a person, the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. Well, this is a wonderful book you've written. Oh, thank it's, you. It's challenging for me personally because I've spent most of my life as an actor and as a person trying to learn how to relate to people, people right in front of me. And you really examined it, and in a very personal way. It's admirable how personal you are. In the beginning, describing yourself as a boy and maybe even as a young man as withdrawn, clever, glib, did that work for you for a while? Yeah, it worked great for a while. <laughs> I remember when I was in my 20s thinking, I'm glad I'm not a deep person. That seemed, Being deep seems hard. It seems <laughs> like it brings a lot of sadness. And I'm, I'm happy to just coast along the surface here. But eventually life happened to me and um, I was introduced to depths of myself I didn't know existed and I had to deal with it. <laughs> so um, I've, uh, when you go through hard times, I say you can either be broken or broken open. And hopefully I was broken open and changed for the better. What broke you open? Well, some of it is the normal things of age. Um, some that I went through a very hard period about 10 years ago, I, there was divorce and I was sort of living alone and I did what any a male idiot would do in those circumstances. I tried to work my way through the problem. And so uh, the symptom, the symbol of that for me was I was not having anybody over to my little apartment. And so I was just working all the time. And uh, in the drawer that, where there should have been silverware, there was post-it notes. And where there should have been plates, there were envelopes. So I, I, everything was work for me. And so that was um, just a bad way to live. Do I remember right you said... You had work friends, but you didn't have weekend friends. Yeah, so I had people I could schmooze with and talk politics, but the people you call at three in the morning, uh, those were sh in short supply. Um, and so, you know, I am not an exceptional person, but I mentioned in this book that I'm a grower. Uh, I do change, and I wrote a book about emotion, and I wrote a book about moral formation, and a book about community. And uh, I'm going to name drop here, but it was a proud moment for me. I've been interviewed twice in my life by Oprah in 2014 and 2019. And at the end of the 2019 interview, she pulls me aside and said, you know, David, I rarely see somebody change so much in middle age. You were so emotionally blocked before. So she should know she's Oprah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and she must have interviewed thousands of people. 
Yeah. And so I, I took that as a good moment that I, it's never too late to grow in life. How did you do it? Your book is called How to Know a Person. How have you learned to better know people, to develop those weekend friends? Yeah, I, I'm um, a little weird in this way. I, I, I write my way to understanding things. So I write books about things. So in order to become more emotional, I wrote a book about emotion. <laughs> uh, and so this is not normal. Uh, but I, I've tried to change uh, just the way I show up in the world, the way I look at people on a train. I'm now way more likely to um, talk to a stranger on a train. And there's a lot of research. We should really do that if you're on a plane or in a coffee shop or in a bar. Uh, your instinct is to get behind your screen and just, you know, whatever, read whatever it is. But people are much happier and enjoy the ride way more if they strike up a, a conversation with a stranger. I've had thousands of conversations with people I would never have got to know who are like very different than me. I had a conversation with this 80-year-old guy who's a big Trump backer, and he just told me his life. And it it was probably more divorces than I could count. And winning a fortune, losing a fortune, winning a fortune. And he showed me pictures of him surrounded by a bunch of 20-year-old beautiful people and the pictures on the back of a yacht in Italy. Um, he was a remarkable guy, not my cup of tea all the time, but it was part of the human drama to, to, to be like that. So I've, I've really opened myself up for that kind of conversation. I've really tried to make the conversations storytelling conversations. So I no longer ask somebody, what do you think about this? I ask them, how'd you come to believe this? Uh, I want them to tell me about the person or the experience that really shaped them. Am I wrong about this? It seems that your writing has focused more and more on smaller and smaller groups until you're down to the individual and how the individual can function better. Am I, do I see that correctly in your yeah, work? I, I think that is correct because social scientists can give us generalizations about people, but the key thing is to see the person right in front of you. And they're, oh, the individuals are always more interesting than stereotypes. So I, I ran to a woman years ago who was, a, who was at a Trump rally, and she was a lesbian biker who converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. And I was like, what stereotype do you fit into? And so <laughs> I, I just want to understand the, un, the unique, never-to-be-repeated individual in front of me. And I have to say, in the four years of working on this book, I'm, I'm trying to, I interviewed psychologists, I interviewed uh, cognitive scientists, therapists, teachers, biographers. The one group that was most helpful to me was actors, because actors have to get into a role. And so, you know, I, I read um, a, an interview Viola Davis gave, and she said, you, you know, you have to observe the mi minute, uh, uh, details of people's behavior. How do they nod their head when they're anxious? Uh, how do they swallow when they're nervous and scared? And she says, I'm always a close observer of people. I got to interview uh, Matthew McConaughey, another actor, obviously. Uh, and he said, I'm trying to find the one physical gesture that characterizes the person's whole personality. And so he said to me, some people are front, hands in the front pockets kind of guys. They're kind of hunched over and closed in. And therefore, when they're trying to assert themselves, they're going to be a little phony. And as he described that gesture, I thought of Richard Nixon. He's sort of hunched in kind of guy. <laughs> and, and when he asserts himself, he's a little phony. And then I saw an interview with um, uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, who played John Adams in the series years ago. And he said that he noticed John Adams was um, hypochondriac. He was always sick. 
And so he walked around like a guy who's always dyspeptic, always sort of bothered by some ailment. And so actors are just phenomenal at understanding who is this person? How do I embody them? I was really struck by a story you tell about a study that was done on a campus where two people were carrying a door and somebody started to ask a stranger, a person in on the, uh, on the uh, research, asked a stranger for directions. You Describe it, because you can describe it better than I can. Yeah. There's a, a guy asking directions, who's actually a researcher, of a college student on a college campus. And as the direction giver is giving directions to the directions asker, two workmen, who are actually also researchers, pass between them. One of the workmen drops off, and the directions asker picks up the door and walks away. So after the door has passed from between them, the directions giver is facing an entirely different human being. But they don't notice. Most of the time they don't notice because they don't predict that one human being is going to instantly turn into another human being. Uh, and so it, it shows us how creative we all are in creating our world. Uh, experience is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. And I really have to respect that you have your own point of view, your own construction of reality. And I have to try to ask you about how, how do you see this? That sounds so much like what you were saying before about stereotypes. What, what stereotype did that woman fall into? If, if we expect, when we hear the first few words out of somebody's mouth, that we've got them pegged, we think we have them pegged, if we're often wrong because we're, we're predicting something that's not necessarily there. Yeah. I have this dualism in the book. I say some people are diminishers and some people are illuminators. And diminishers aren't curious about people and they stereotype and they label. And one of the things that diminisher will do is called stacking. And that's if I know one thing about you, you supported Donald Trump. Then I proceed under the assumption that I know 8 million things about you. <laughs> right. And that, that's stacking. And illuminators, on the other hand, make you feel lit up and, and warm. They're pure, persistently curious about you. They want to know your backstory. And they make you feel great because they, they really warmly pay attention to the stories you tell about yourself. How does the illuminator do that? What would be an example of doing that? Yeah, so I, in the book, I walk people through the phases of really getting to know someone. And I think my favorite one, and the one we appreciate too little, is the, um, the first meeting, the first gaze. When we're meeting each other, uh, we're unconsciously asking ourselves certain questions, like, is this per am I a priority to this person? Am I a person to them? Do they have some respect for me? And the answers to those questions will be communicated in the eyes before anything, words come out of the mouth. And the story I tell in the book is, um, I'm out in Waco, Texas. I'm having breakfast at a diner with a 93-year-old lady named LaRue Dorsey. And she presented herself to me as a sort of this strict disciplinarian. She was a teacher and she said, I loved my students enough to discipline them. And I was a little intimidated by her. Like she seemed like a tough drill sergeant lady. And into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours, a pastor named Jimmy Durrell, who's, uh, who pastors to the homeless, really wonderful guy. And he comes up to our table, grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders, and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old, and says into her face, Miss Dorsey, Miss Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. 
And that stern drill sergeant turned in an instant into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And it's the power of attention that we cast on others that create, calls a different version of that person into being. And the key fact about that story is that Jimmy is a pastor. And so to him, every person he meets is made in the image of God. Every person he looks at, he's looking into the face of God. He's trying to, he talked to someone who has a soul of infinite value and dignity. And the, my point is you can be a Christian or Jew or Muslim or atheist or agnostic, but treating people, everybody you meet with that level of reverence and respect is an absolute precondition for seeing them well. And once you do that, then you, you really got the ball rolling. And that's a wonderful example, too, of something else that you say in the book that really struck me and resonated with me in a personal way. How you are when you come into a room changes what you perceive is going on in the room. You say it in a better way. How would you say it? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, if you walk in, uh, if you're a teacher and you, you're formal behind a lectern, then you're going to bring out one version of your class. But if you're sitting cross-legged on the floor, laughing and playing with them, you're going to bring out an entirely different version of the class. So we create uh, the social environment, the moral ecology around us by the way we are. Uh, and there's another phrase I have in the book that I really like. I got it from an educator named Parker Palmer. And he says, every epistemology implies an ethic. So the way you know the world becomes your way of being in the world. And if you know with generosity, you're going to see wonderful people doing the best they can. If you see the world with critical eyes, you're going to see flaws. If you see the world with scared eyes, you're going to see threats. And so every epistemology implies a, a way of being in the world. So that really has a bearing, I guess, on how well, how well you're able to read what other people are going through. Empathy. How do you think of empathy? What's empathy to you? Because I've seen a lot of different definitions of it from different points of view. Yeah. And I think of empathy like a lot of these things. I emphasize seeing someone else is a skill. It's like learning uh, tennis or it's like learning carpentry. Or frankly, it's a little like learning acting. Not that I know how to act, but as I understand it, actors go to drama school, they learn certain techniques. But when they're on stage or on screen, they're not thinking of the techniques. It's just become their way of being in the world. And so the set of skills involved in doing that is like detecting anxiety in somebody's voice, uh, hope, knowing how to ask for an offer of forgiveness, uh, knowing how to end a conversation well. Like you can abruptly end a conversation, make people feel bad, or you can say, I really enjoyed talking to you about this, and I, I really appreciated this story you told. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. And then you leave that conversation feeling great. Like the person really appreciated something I said. And it's a minor little social thing, but it's about learning skills. Uh, and empathy, to me, is three different skills. The first skill is mirroring. It's do I catch the emotion you're sending? And I, to do that, I have to be comfortable in my body, and I have to let myself feel what you're feeling. Then the second skill is mentalizing. That's where, say, it's your first day at work. I think, well, I remember my first day at work. I remember I was sort of nervous, I was excited to be there, I was a little overwhelmed. And so I can project my experience onto you and develop a theory of what you're going through. And then the third skill is caring. Like con men are really good at reading other people. 
but we don't say they're empathetic because they don't care. And so to get really good at caring, um, you have to have a kind of emotional intelligence. So babies, if you come home from work and you've got a four-year-old and the four-year-old sees you crying or upset, the four-year-old will give you a Band-Aid or a, a teddy bear, which is sweet, but it's not emotionally intelligent because they just don't know. But if, if you've got a buddy who's going through an anxiety attack, you don't give them what you would want if you were going through an anxiety attack, like a glass of wine. You do whatever they want to do. You massage their temples or whatever the heck they're asking. And there's one story I love in the book uh, by Rabbi, Rabbi Irving Kula, and he said he is a he is a somebody he deals with in his congregation, who has a brain injury, and sometimes she just falls to the floor. And uh, she says to him, "When people when I fall to the floor, everybody immediately wants to pick me up because they're so nervous about seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really want is for them to get down on the floor with me and just sit with me for a few minutes. And so empathy is knowing, feeling what they're feeling." having a deeper intellectual understanding of what they're going through, and then knowing effectively what they need so you can offer care. That's a challenge that I face all the time, and I bet, I bet most of us do at some time, which is to want to be there for the other person by fixing what's wrong instead of being there with them and find, looking for ways in which we can actually be helpful, which come from them and not from our vast store of defen defensive <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> right, exactly. Defensive knowledge is a great phrase. When we come back from our break, David Brooks explores with me the art of conversation and the not-so-secret sauce, curiosity. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with David Brooks, where the topic is conversation. What about conversation? Something we all go through all the time, and I get the impression we could all get better at it. Yeah, um, so we all think we're good at it, but none of us are as good as we think we are. It's all easy to have an easy conversation where you talk about sports or politics or whatever, and you'll forget it about it five minutes later. But my strategy is to like have a conversation you'll remember. And when you're first meeting somebody, that's hard to do. You're just establishing trust. But even so, I, I ask people, where, where you're from? Where did you spend your childhood? And people love to talk about their childhood, and it's always interesting. 
Um, people are boring on their adulthood, but they're always interesting on their childhood. Um, <laughs> and then, and then as you get to know someone, you can have funny questions like, um, "What's your favorite unimportant thing about you?" And so I learned from this academic guy that he loves trashy reality TV shows, and he told me about them, and I told him about my obsession with Taylor Swift, and that's like our funny unimportant things about us. So that's, then, that's yours, your, your, your obsession with Taylor Swift? I, I have the musical taste of a 14-year-old girl. And so <laughs> at any age I've been, I have always listened to the music that was popular among 14-year-old girls at that time. I, I, don't know, I don't know why that, that is, but I, if I was reborn, I'd be reborn as Miley Cyrus or something. Um, <laughs> well, you're certainly in touch. With the, with, with the civilization. <laughs> I am, well, now that Taylor Swift has blown up, I, it looks premature. I should have invested when she was just starting out. But um, So anyway, I, I collected some conversation tips. And some of them are like, um, be a loud listener. Like I have a buddy, when you talk to him, he, uh, he's, like a, he's in a congregation of one of those Pentecostal churches. Mm-hmm. He's always going like, amen, yes, mm-hmm. yes, preach, preach. And just love talking to that guy. Another one is uh, don't fear the pause. So if I'm making a conversational comment, at what point do you stop listening so you can think of what to say? And the rule is let me talk to my my comment, then pause for three or four seconds, and then respond. And that way you've heard my whole response. Another tip I heard was don't be a topper. If you're telling me about a problem you're having with some adolescent in your life, now, my temptation is to say, oh, I, I know exactly what we're going through. I'm having a problem with my Tommy. But all that does is showing I'm trying to shift attention away from you and onto me. And so it's, it seems like you're trying to relate, but really it's not. You should ask questions about what are you dealing with with your kid or whatever it is. And asking questions three times, the same question three times in different ways, is a way to get really deep into anybody's point oh, of view. Oh, that's an interesting idea. So you just keep pursuing it. You know, that sounds related to something that seems to me to be very important in this whole process, which is to have actual curiosity about the person you're talking to. Not feigned curiosity, but the reason you would do three questions in different ways is because you really want to know. Right. That's. I think the number one reason we don't know, want to know, don't really accurately know the other people, is we're just not curious enough. We're busy presenting ourselves. And I get that. I go into a dinner party and I think, oh, I'm going to really ask about everybody else's lives. And then I have a couple glasses of wine and I start telling funny stories. <laughs> what are funny stories to me anyway? Um, but, but having that curiosity, you're right, is, it's absolutely the key. Um, and you've got to uh, think this, isn't a, this human being is, is a mystery I'll never get to the bottom of. But th- they're superior to me in some way. They're more interesting on some topic. And if I ask them to tell me their life story, I will have fun. It'll be an adventure that we'll both share. So do you jump right in or do you, do you see some value in small talk? I get the impression you feel that small talk may be unfairly misvalued. Yeah. I mean, this getting to know someone is, takes some time and you have to build trust. And so I like small talk. I had a group of interns at a, this nonprofit I ran and they wanted to run a program a sort of a media campaign, let's get rid of small talk. 
because it seemed to them trivial and like beside the point. But a middle-aged guy, I'm like, eh, I kind of like small talk because you can't hear each other until you feel comfortable with each other. And you got to feel safe in the body before you can feel safe in the mind. And so as we're doing small talk, we're just uh, establishing the beginnings of something we have in common. And once we've established that basic level of safety, uh, then we can go off and have really deep conversations. And, you know, I ask people, as I mentioned, I ask about their childhood. Uh, even little things, I no longer ask people, uh, what do you think about this? I ask, how did you come to think this? So I want to get stories out of their mind. Uh, and I told, I read a great story in a book called You're Not Listening by a woman named Kate Murphy. And she describes a focus group and the focus group moderator had been hired to find out why people go to the grocery store late at night. Instead of just asking, why do you go to the grocery store late at night? She asked for a story. Tell me about the last time you went to the grocery store late at night. And one woman in the focus group who hadn't said anything up to that point said, well, last time I went to the grocery store late at night, I'd smoked a joint and I wanted a menage a trois with me, Ben and Jerry. <laughs> and so that was like a great little story that she told us a little about her life. So that's, that's a better way to ask the question. You know, I was very struck by the section in your book on looking back to your ancestors, finding the link to your ancestors, where you came from, the place and the people you owe your life to. How has that affected you in your life, looking back like that? Yeah, well, I was at a dinner party and I asked the group, which a question my wife thought was pretentious, uh, which was, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And it was turned out to be a great party because we had some people with Dutch background, we had some African-American people at the party and of different groups. And we all talked about the different uh, ways we've been influenced, not only by our grandparents, but by ancestors going back generations. And so I grew up in a Jewish household. And so we're the people of the book famously. And so reading and writing were bound to be part of my life. Um, Jews argument is a form of prayer. So I got pretty good in argument. I went into the argument business basically. Um, and then Jews were this obscure people in a faraway place in the world. And they thought, you know, all of history revolves around us. <laughs> we're the chosen people. It was sort of an audacious claim but it, it comes with pressure uh, to live a morally serious life and to live up to the covenant. And so I think I've been shaped by all these patterns that go back centuries. I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I sure do. Well, I had a moment reading that where I really did look back to where I came from. And unlike some people who you give examples of who look back on their early childhood days in a beautiful garden or on an island, or playing in the sunshine. My earliest memories from the age of two and a half is standing in the wings watching burlesque shows. Uh, wow. Because my father was in burlesque when I was born, and I watched the comics and the straight men and the strippers and the chorus girls, and that was my world. And my father, I realized that the lifelong relationship I had with my I'm realizing all these things because of these this section in your book and it really meant something to me. I was very competitive with my father who was an actor mm. and I thought I was different from him and better than him, I'm sorry to say, as an actor. 
And I realized from just that section in your book, looking back on it, that I was shaped by the comics I saw. I was shaped by the way they performed and the way they took on their characters. And I was shaped by him. And whereas I once thought that he didn't do it well enough, I realized he did it as well as he could with the experiences he had. And I took from him and tried to extend his reach. Mm. So I was together with him. I was not apart from him. And it was a wonderful experience for me, and I thank you for it. Oh, yeah, that's so fascinating. As you were speaking, I'm reminded, like, some people have what I call the enunciation moment, those moments early in childhood that prefigure what's going to happen later. And so my daughter walked into a hockey rink at age five and felt immediately at home. And now she, she coaches hockey out in California. Or this on a grander scale, somebody handed um, uh, Albert Einstein a compass when he was four years old. And he thought, oh, hidden forces in the universe. I want to study that. And he did that for his whole life. And there was a scientist named E.O. Wilson, who uh, when he was seven, his parents were splitting up and they sent him with some strangers to live on the north coast of Florida. And he discovered nature. Uh, stingrays and ants, and he became a naturalist. And I think it's early in life we we find a, a world we we want to inhabit. Uh, and it's so interesting that how your perception of your father changed because we experience our childhood twice. You know, we experience it, we experience it, and then later in life we go back and re-experience it, and hopefully in a more appreciative way. And it sounds like you're doing that. Yeah, it was an uncanny experience. In the course of the book, you just mentioned once once or maybe twice the project called Weave, which you helped found. W- what are the weavers? Who are they? What, are they? what do they do? That started, it's related to this book. It started because I um, felt that whatever I was writing about in my column, whether it was political polarization or conflict or depression, it was caused by low social trust. And it was called by the fraying of the social fabric. But that social fabric is being rewoven at the local level by community builders all across the country, people we call weavers. And so we go into a town, whether it's New Orleans or McCook, Nebraska, or Wilkes, North Carolina, or Baltimore, or L.A., and we say, who's trusted here? And people start giving you names of people who are really trusted in their community. And they often give you the same names. And there are people um, like a, a woman in Chicago who was living in a tough neighborhood called Englewood. And she was going to move out because it was dangerous. But on the day she was thinking of moving out, she looked across the street and saw a little girl in a red dress playing with broken bottles in an empty lot. And she turns to her husband and says, we're not leaving. We're not going to be another family who left this. And so she formed a big community organization in Englewood in Chicago. And now you go to that neighborhood and and the t-shirts in the stores say, proud son of Englewood, proud daughter of Englewood. So she's a weaver of that community. And so weave is an attempt to hold up the people who are building community. And uh, our theory is that a culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy. And those weavers have found a wonderful way to live. It's very other-centered. They're very rooted in place. uh, And they really are fantastic at connecting with people. And a couple of them would tell me when they would go to the Walmart, 
they would have to peek down the aisle because they know everybody in their community. And so it, going to Walmart takes two hours because like everyone's <laughs> stopping them and saying, hey, how you doing? And so if we can connect people in the city who are all in the business of really building communities, they find each, each other's friendships very valuable. So it's a bit of money, it's a bit of publicity, and it's a bit of uh, peer support. Well, it's admirable. It's really great. I just love talking with you. We're running out of time, but we always end our conversations with seven quick questions. In some ways, we've, these are the same questions I've asked about 300 people so far. But I think a lot of them have been answered already by what, what we've been talking about. They have something to do with communication and relating, but not, not all of them. For instance, of all the things that you've explored, all the things there are in the universe to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Uh, the brain, for sure. So we've got three pounds of meat in our head, and somehow out of this meat, consciousness arises. Uh, and, you know, the, the brain is just such a, is more complicated than we can know and more complicated than we do know. And you have to take seriously the fact that 99% of what we feel and think is unconscious. Uh, the brain is working away down there. Uh, and like, if we're going out on a date, your brain, since you're a mammal, is smelling the other person, smelling pheromones. And, you know, you don't think about that. You don't think we're sniffing each other, but we are. And if you lose the sense of smell, you lose a lot of your social abilities. I once, uh, I once was in a play in London and I said to the cast, we have to be together and really be one unit tonight. So let's get together on stage before the curtain goes up and smell one another. <laughs> see, that's, I, see that, that's, you were very wise. I should say one, one, one of the pivotal stories that happened in my uh, life, which I describe in the book, was that I'm on a million panel discussions in Washington about boring fiscal policy or something. Somebody said, the people who go to Washington are not the naughty kid who put the cat in the dryer. They're the kid who tattled on the naughty kid who put the cat in the dryer. And so we have, we have these, Washington is the most emotionally avoidant spot on the face of the earth. But I got invited to a panel discussion at the public theater in New York. And I was surrounded suddenly by actors. And some, there was a guy named Bill Irwin, who was this funny clown, and Anne Hathaway was there. And before the panel discussion, we all did a group hug. And then we charged out there and Hathaway sang a song. And then there were tissues on stage in case we started crying. And we started emoting things and feelings started bubbling out of me. And then we were done and we had a big group hug. And I was like, I gotta do that. Like, I don't wanna just do boring fiscal policy panels. <laughs> I, I gotta spend my time with theater people. <laughs> yeah, I find that too. I, I love being in the company of theater people too. We, we're only on the end, on question one. We got six more. Okay, I'll be quick. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, it, I'll tell you, you can try, but it generally doesn't work. If you uh, tell someone they have their facts wrong, you really are reinforcing their belief in those facts. So you have to get, tell them to get their story right. And if they can shift their story, then they'll shift their facts to fit, fit a different story. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, maybe that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one question that uh, somebody asked me or I was asked of him, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Like, what role does fear play in your life? Uh, that gets at some deep, deep waters. Yeah, there. that's very interesting. Now, I usually ask this as, 
how do you stop a compulsive talker? But I think I may start to change that. How do you deal with a compulsive talker? Well, I, I mentioned in the book, I was on the phone with a, somebody who was a White House source of mine, and he starts talking to me, and our call drops, so we're on cell phone. And I call him back like seven minutes later, and his assistant says, well, he's busy on the phone. And I'm like, no, he thinks he's talking to me. He's just droning on, but our call dropped like seven minutes ago. <laughs> and so I'm, I don't, I'm not good at stopping compulsive talkers, but I will say if you talk at me for 40 minutes, um, then that will be the last time we will be enjoying each other's company. You will, there's a guy, Calvin Trillin, who calls such people bore bombs. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I, I, it's a trigger for me. We, we won't be together again if you just talk at me. I think we covered the next question. How do you start up a conversation with someone you don't know sitting next to you at a dinner party? Yeah, I always do. I, I, says, I said, um, where'd you grow up? Or where'd you get your name? That gets people talking about their ethnicity. Mm. Or you always ask about what do you, what do you think this person is proud of? People love to talk about what they're proud of. So if it's their kids or their sports team, whatever, their college, get something. Ask them about what they're proud of. Okay, next. What gives you confidence? Uh, I'm, I'm known around the New York Times as the irrationally optimist at the paper. So uh, I think things are going great. Sometimes you think America's in decline. But go back and read history. People have always thought America was in decline. And we have a pretty unique, creative, innovative culture. And we have energy. And that energy sends us off in a bunch of screwy directions. But it means we have the kind of dynamism that can fix its problems. So I'm quite optimistic about America long-term. In the, in the short-term, it's going to be terrible. <laughs> okay, last question. What book changed your life? Uh, I would say, actually, this is going to sound pretentious. I mean, the, the easiest answer is Paddington the Bear. <laughs> yes. I, when I was seven, I read Paddington the Bear, and I decided I wanted to become a writer. So that book changed my life. Uh, on a more serious level, um, there's a book called Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke, which I was forced to read in college, which I hated. But then I came to see its wisdom. And the, the core concept in that book is the world is really complicated and we really have to be humble about what we can know. And so uh, trust your emotions, but distrust your reason. Uh, and so when you do change, it should be incremental and gradual. And that really became the touchstone of my life, that I'm really humble about what I think I can know about any situation. And I'm ready, I hope, to be wrong and to evolve um, out of that humility. And to me, humility is not um, thinking lowly of yourself. It's accurate self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness. It's seeing yourself with all your flaws and all your successes, but seeing yourself accurately. And Lincoln was a model of humility in that way. Well, so are you. It's really great talking with you. I'm, I'm so glad we had this. We've met once before, but we didn't have a chance to have this kind of conversation, and I really value it. Oh, well, I, I obviously am honored to have a conversation with you. I've followed your career since the very beginning, and it's uh, you've been a, from MASH days on to science, and all that you've done in between. You've been a major figure in the life of a lot of us, including me. Oh, that's kind. Thank you. Great talking with you. Great talking with you.
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times and a regular commentator on Friday episodes of PBS's NewsHour. His book, Bobos in Paradise, The New Upper Class and How They Got There, published in 2000, was the first of his other bestsellers. They include The Social Animal, The Road to Character, On Paradise Drive, and of course the book we discussed today, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with historian Heather Cox Richardson. Her letters from an American land in the inboxes of some two million of us every morning, as they have for the last four years. On September 15th, 2019, I wrote down what the world looked like to me that day. And comments and questions and things flooded in, and I thought, well, I'm not going to write the next night because that's just going to crowd the zone and nobody wants to hear from me every night. And so I didn't write on the 16th of September, but I felt by the 17th like I needed to answer people's questions. So I wrote again on the 17th and I've written every night since. People always talk about reaching their audiences. And for me, it was the opposite. My audience came to me and said, can you please explain what's going on? And it happens that I'm very well trained at explaining politics and the political system and American history. So yeah, I could. Heather Cox Richardson and her letters from an American. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.